Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Today we speak with Shana Simmons, Chief Legal Officer at Everlaw, an advanced e-discovery platform helping legal organizations solve the challenges of discovery and investigations more efficiently. Shana began her professional journey as a middle school and high school teacher before pursuing her lifelong dream of becoming a lawyer. After working in a corporate practice at an international law firm, Shana took an in-house role with Google as a contracts manager, where she focused on enhancing the company's legal operations. While working at Google, she was also a fellow at the Leadership Council on Legal Diversity. As Chief Legal Officer at Everlaw, Shana leads a team responsible for the company's legal, commercial, privacy, regulatory, and governance risk and compliance matters. It was a really energizing conversation, and in it, Shana talks about what she learned as a teacher, the importance of legal ops, finding a community at the LCLD, and her exciting work at Everlaw. She's really an amazing conversationalist and amazing person. Hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed having the conversation. Thanks for listening. Hi, Shana. How are you? Welcome to the uh, podcast and thank you for making time. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here with you today, Stephen. Thank you. Well, I really look forward to our conversation. You're you're currently Chief Legal Officer at Everlaw, but you didn't start your career as a lawyer. You started as a teacher. That's right. And you taught uh, middle school and high school for a few years. Correct. Yep. In the inner cities of Washington, D.C. and Oakland, California. What did you learn by being a teacher that you've applied in your your legal career? That's great. I think uh, let me start a little bit to say that I think serving as a teacher really cemented this idea of mission based approach and social responsibility. I I don't know, Stephen, if we've talked about it, but I grew up in the Bronx in a one bedroom apartment and I am here where I am today in beautiful Oakland with a great job and with a fantastic family because of educators. And so it really cemented this idea of giving back for me, number one. Number two, I think as a teacher, I didn't realize this until now. As a leader, most of my job is getting out of the way and allowing the people on my team to strive and to really lean into their strengths. And I think as a teacher, I learned that superpower that teachers are are superheroes, but bringing out the strengths in everyone. So I'd sum it up as two things cemented my commitment to social responsibilities and understanding, you know, I understand capitalism, right? But it's tempered with some sort of community responsibility as you defined it. And number two is developing talent. Yeah, that had to be a skill that stuck with you for your whole career, because that's that's how someone's successful, right, is to develop the talents of the people around them and the team that they're working with. Yeah. And I think I, I am in touch with some of my students today, to this day, I'm about 20 of them consistently. And it is incredible to see what they're doing and how they've inspired me. And I have students who had never left Oakland who, because I went to boarding school, that's part of my story um, from the Bronx, went to boarding school, who went on to boarding schools and who went on to such great college prep schools, who then went on to my alma mater, Wesleyan, and to Berkeley and to Stanford and University of District of Columbia. So it's incredible to see where they are today. You just have to kind of get out of the way sometimes. That's got to be incredibly gratifying. I, I know, you know, my mom was a teacher. I've got a son who's a teacher. And I know it's feeling that you've made a contribution 
to someone's life in a positive way is incredibly gratifying, isn't it? Absolutely gratifying. And I think even today with teams that I've led, be it at Google and or at Everlaw and to see what people are doing now with their careers. And I remember having some of their first one-on-ones and where they thought they were going to be in their career to where they are today is incredible. So I think it is the best part of my job. Let's just hope even that I have a story to tell about my two kids when they grew up and that I can do that. (laughs) I'm sure you will. But you didn't stay a teacher. You went to law school. Yes. Why the change of career? What Did you always want to be a lawyer? Yes, I think, Stephen, it was, um, I always wanted to be a lawyer. From the age of nine, I'm one of those strange kids. Um, I looked around me in the Bronx at the time. This is the 90s and 80s, um, which wasn't doing so well. And I figured that there were two things that was missing from my life and not just my life, but my community was power and money. Power, not in the sense of to overpower someone, but the power to make change, the power of the access to knowledge, the power to have access and to do anything and financial stability. And I paid attention and I studied the subjects that I knew and Claire Huxable was the closest to what I thought I could be. <laughs> Uh, And she was a lawyer and I am a pretty steadfast and pretty committed person and dedicated to what I want to achieve. And I did everything in the night when I was nine years old, researched what I needed to do to become a lawyer and did that. But college came and I went to Wesleyan and, and I realized that the world is greater than me and myself and my contributions. And I, I just had this pull to do something more and give back. And that's where I went to become a teacher. But My mom nicely reminded me every year when I was a teacher that I had this dream of becoming a lawyer as well. And so when my students, I I taught at a very special school in Oakland. And when my students, I followed the kids from seventh grade to eighth grade. When they were going to high school, I decided I will leave with them and go to law school. And I stayed here in the Bay Area and went to Berkeley. That's awesome. That's what moms do. They remind their children of what their dreams are, right? Yes, that's right. But it was quite a dream uh, to be a teacher as well. So I always feel like I'm living the dream in some way. Absolutely. And so you then you then go to Cleary. Yes. Associate and, and wind up in London doing securities work. And you take another turn by going to Google. Tell us about that decision-making process and what your experience was at Google compared to working in-house, because it had to be very different. So I went to Clary. I think I chose Clary and I realized there's a pattern in my life. I, I choose the next thing based on the people and the problem and the mission and the values being part of the people and the problem, right? And Clary was one of these places, Stephen, I don't know if you've met folks at Clary. The people describe it as quirky, but I realized it was this lockstep firm. It was mission oriented. People were working together to service the clients. And I had summered at another firm and realized that wasn't quite the case. Went to Clary and I naively, without knowing anything about a practicing lawyer and the bit that I, you know, I I learned how to think in law school or double clicked on my thinking in law school. I really learned the practice of law. Naively went to Clary thinking I was in it to win it. I was one of those first years I told I unapologetically announced to my class that I was here to make a partner, right? Like I am that one. So I was that person. Loved the people, enjoyed the time, and really liked the corporate work. When you get corporate work, you understand different clients. You understand how to describe their business, right? Part of the job of writing any proxy statement is just describing the business and understanding the business of what people do and telling it in a way that the folks on the street can understand. 
and I went to London and it was in London where I think I billed nearly 3000 hours that year. So right there was, I was working. <laughs> oh my. I was working a lot. It was 2009 and 2011. And, and you would think that it was, it was right after the bus. So it was a little slow, but Clary was busy. They had a lot of the bankruptcy work and I had a lot of regas work in London. And I was dating. So this is the first time where I started to have, there's a personal reason why I make a professional decision, right? I've described you. I wanted to be a lawyer since I was nine, right? Like did everything I needed to do. So like nothing could come in my way of achieving my goal of what I thought was to have that corner office with a pretty, I thought it was going to be like a soft pink couch, right? That people (laughs) in my office. That's a lot of details. Oh yeah, I had it, Stephen. And you've got to manifest your reality somehow. You've got to get the details right. And for the first time, I made a personal decision um, because I got engaged to my now husband who was an Oakland firefighter. So I needed to find a job back. I called some firms that I knew in the Bay Area, but everything was a bit slow. It was still things were recovering, lateral moves weren't that big. And a friend of mine kept calling me and said, you know, now is the time Google's hiring really junior lawyers to be contracts managers. And there was this part of my ego and my pride that did not send my friend my resume. I said, you know, why would I, after passing the bar and graduating from Berkeley and going to Cleary, come back to Google, who is Google? What is Google, right? To be anyone's contracts manager. But I think after spending a couple of nights in the printers and Stephen, I don't know if you've had to do that or any of your associates or anyone around you. Oh, yes. I've done it in my day. Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh, After spending a few nights with the printers and having some tough conversations with myself, I realized that it was a great opportunity to go and learn. I met some incredible people in the interview process. And looking back at my career, I was part of this founding legal team. I didn't know that then, this founding legal team for what is now Google Cloud, right? It was a team of seven of us who then grew to, and the the team then grew to more than a hundred people. And we saw Google Cloud grow from 300 to 30,000 folks. But it was a time that I decided to go back to base camp, as I call it. I wrote an article about the day as I was reflecting on my career. Although I, I would actually write the article a bit differently today, Stephen. And it was time to go back to base camp to learn as I made this hike up Mount Everest. And I'm not sure if I'm still at the top of the hike or if I'm going back to base camp at times. I think it's important to keep going back to base camp. You don't stay at Mount Everest for long. You'll die that way. Right. It was a base camp moment for me. That was an incredible launch for my career. That's amazing. You hit Google such an interesting time given the growth of the company. It's an experience not very many people get to have. Oh, I know it was. And you see, you know, there's this, you asked also about the difference between outside counsel and being in-house. Being in-house, and I can talk more about it with my current role, but it was incredible because you got to ride the wave with the client. I got to ride the wave with Google. I almost at some point became, when you build a foundation, you have to have these stable rods, right? I was a stable rod for the business at a certain point because it was just growing like crazy and the leadership would change so much. And I was there. So I had the history of not just the legal things. But what I realized, because I'd been so long, I had the history of the industry. I had the history of what our competitors were thinking about. I had our history of what our regulators were doing. And so it was just just such a good learning opportunity to grow with the business and also how to figure out how to scale myself, right? If it's only a team of seven, right. you got to think about what can you do differently 
right? So that you're not burnt out because I did take this job to be able to have a husband at the time and kids and, and have have it all, but you can't have it all at the same time. No, but you can have a life. Yeah, I can have a life. And billing 3,000 hours to affirm that (laughs) that is a kind of life. Mm -hmm. So you then go from Google to Everlaw to get a great opportunity to go in as general counsel. You're now chief legal officer. And I, I, I heard you say, I think I have this right, that one of your first hires at Everlaw was uh, legal ops. Tell me about that decision. What was it about the opportunity that led you to conclude that the first hire wasn't a lawyer or a, a somebody practicing lawyer, but a legal ops profession? Yes, I think I have to go back to Google, right? So first I'll go back, right? So yeah, I had this incredible opportunity to go back to Basecamp to really learn enterprise. And not only that, the mission of Google, right, was to organize the world's information to make it accessible to everyone. And for me, right, leaving the coming from the Bronx, where I felt like we were shadows in the dark to some extent, like you look at Manhattan, the bus in Manhattan, like there was just a dearth of opportunity for us. I aligned with the mission, right? But what I realized, I'm aligned with this mission, but the legal department itself at the time, we didn't have everything as organized, right? Nothing was as accessible to us. Nothing was as easy. So it was as if I would negotiate one deal with you, Stephen, and we would have this incredible, wonderful, philosophical conversation about data use. And we would get to some language, you on the adversarial side, I mean, that that worked for you and that worked for Google and how we can scale it. Tomorrow, while I was Google, I will speak to Bob. We will have a very similar conversation. And it was as if I had to create the language again. Right. And so there was so much work that I realized that I was doing and I had to scale. Remember, we were seven people with this growing business and then we had to grow to 100. So not only did we have to scale ourselves, we had to scale our knowledge. Right. We had to scale our, we had to, we had to transfer our knowledge and we had to train people. And there's only one of me or there's only five of us. There was only, there was a limited number of middle management at the time. And what I realized was, was missing was let's start with the basics, even is knowledge management. Law firms actually have knowledge management done really well. People talk about law firms being laggards and I disagree. I think law firms understood knowledge management very well. So I realized, okay, there was this element of knowledge management. And there was this other element at Google. I I said I was kind of this stable rod. But what that meant as well is when I was working on projects to streamline our contracts or to improve pricing or to get competitive terms, I was also program managing a lot of projects, right? And so you were spending my time. I was getting paid really well as a senior counsel to program manage things across the organization, working with finance, working with this. And I thought, okay, this is also not a great use of my time. So I need to spread my knowledge. We need to be more nimble. We need to program manage. How do we do that? And legal ops was the way to go. Sales ops has a strong, sales understood this long time ago. Finance understood this long time ago. Marketing, any branch of an organization that's running really well, understood they needed a strong legal ops or arm. So when I joined Everlaw, and I think it was an incredible opportunity and somewhat of a base camp again, quite frankly, you know, like I think it's, you know, you kind of go back, you go up, you go back and kind of find, figure it out. Although most days feels like Mount Everest. I met with AJ. I love the company, the mission. It was helping folks like us, right, uh, do our works better and the people who, who support us. I told them that I had to have a first hire. It had to be a legal ops person. Why? Because 
the person was going to help me and the organization build the right foundation from day one so that we have the right tools in place so that we are utilizing and enhancing the value of the lawyers and what they bring to the organization. And so within three months of her joining, we had a contract legal management tool up, but that is scale. That's amazing. I know. We did the RFP. We reviewed five vendors. We talked to folks. We had that up and we have all of our contracts go through the contract legal management tool amongst a lot of other things. The other thing I think legal ops does, which we devalue being in-house is understanding your own metrics. And I don't say people, when I first came, they said, you have to get simple legal. You have to manage outside counsel spend. It's not just about outside counsel spend. It's one thing for me to understand how efficient is my department. If my department is efficient and we're working on the right things at the right time, I actually don't have to worry about outside counsel spend because we know how to leverage and we know how to augment our work with outside counsel at the time because I understand what my team is working on. And so she helps me work on the data and not the metrics just to track activity, but the impact that we do. So I think that it was the best decision I've ever made. And I will advocate that for any first time GC going anywhere. That's awesome. Now, Google is known for its legal ops function, at least under Mary. Mm -hmm. Did you overlap with her? Oh yeah, Mary and I, um, I would say we're friends. We've had a lot of fun together. And Mary had a big remit. Right. And Google Enterprise was almost the orphan child, right? Like ads was important. If you think about where Mary had to spend her time. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Right. So Google Cloud was almost the last one where legal ops could have focused their time with the, with a department of over 2000 people. Now, I want to focus on Everlaw and your role there in the thing. But before we do that, let me ask you, you had an experience as a fellow for LCLD. Tell me a little bit about that program and what that experience was like. So first, I think we should tell people what LCLD is, right? It's a leadership council and legal diversity. Not everyone knows. And I I don't know how lucky I was. I was Google's Rosie Lipscon, who's a competition counsel at, at uh, director at Google. And I were the first fellows from Google to go to LCLD in 2017. And when you're at a place like Google, and I tell people at big companies, whether it's Salesforce or AWS or GE, et cetera, JP Morgan, you can become quite insular. And you think the world as it is, is that it's Google. And I didn't realize how insular I was and what I needed from LCLD. LCLD gave me a network, a community of other underrepresented folks. And it reminded me, it took me back to what was most important to me, which is this community given and this being part of a community and this understanding of social responsibility. The training was incredible. The development was incredible. And it wasn't the typical training as you would think, you know, contract drafts. And I can go to PLI for that, right? I can go to CLE for that. But it was really understanding the importance of having some of these conversations and bringing them to your day to day at work conversations about belonging, conversations about the pipeline, conversations about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and the systemic change, not just the systemic change, but the intentions you need to make what happens. So it was such an incredible experience in 2017 that that year, I felt like I had to share my gift with Google. 
So we had Tanya Odom, who I met at LCLD. She talked about diversity and the kinds of conversations to have and change in times and tough times. You know, there was a lot going on and there's been a lot of police brutality going on. And, you know, we're not talking about it on the media, but it still happens day to day and what it, it is to live as a, as a Black person in the U.S., the microaggressions that we face. And she came and did a conversation with the managers of Google Cloud at the time. We were a big organization at the time. And then we had Chris DeSantis come who talks about intergenerational differences and how to communicate and what to expect. And really, we're all more of the same than we are different. And there is something to learn from each generation and just facing that and confronting that. It was such a gift to me. Um, and I was so inspired by the work Robert Gray and the team is doing. So that when I joined Everlaw as a, the chief legal officer in 2020 at the time, it became really important to me that I saw us become a member and we just became a member. So now I've transversed from being this fellow to now giving back and really allowing the folks on my team. I have three folks on my team, two are fellows and one's a pathfinder in LCMD and to see them build their community and to see them enjoy the content that LCLD has been just a heartwarming experience. But most importantly is me being at the conversation and me being at the table now as a member, as a member, um, chief legal officer. And quite frankly, realizing that the conversation hasn't changed that much, Stephen, from when I was in 2017. And the percentages haven't changed that much. I think the percentage got worse. I think the last time I checked, we had 4.4% of lawyers or something are Black. The, the numbers haven't changed despite there being 13% in, in the U.S., and people are still talking about the pipe, right? And they're talking about conversation about systems and there's a conversation about intent. And so it's how do we help each other? And I'll tell you this, Stephen, is that my first outside counsel that I hired when I also came to Evlog was from the LCLD network. I wanted to be sure to support other LCLD fellows. And so I try to give in that way in any way that I can. It's a great program, isn't it? Incredible. At the start of LCLD, they had a number of initiatives trying to deal with almost boiling the ocean to do a whole bunch of dealing with pipeline issues, dealing with mentoring issues. And I always thought the fellows program was sort of the star of those initiatives, not, not perhaps more important, but more thought through and more impactful than others. Yeah, I think the fellows program, and I think the other thing that came out of the fellows program was this almost emotional learning that comes from leadership that a lot of us don't think about. But it was also they have these accountability groups and in these accountability groups for the first time, you're not. I mean, Stephen, if I was a first year at Clary with you and I told you I wanted to be partner, you'd look at me like I was crazy. Like, really, is that what you want? But I was able to share what my aspirations were with this group and how I was going to get there. And we still check in. This is what, five, six years later, and we are still good friends and we still check in with each other. And it's it's interesting how I remember at that point we were in middle management in our careers. We were looking to step into that more and lean forward into that. And now we're at a point of our careers where some of us are thinking about how to slow down and how to wind this down <laughs> a little bit, right? So it's it's great. I just think LCLD is perfect. So I'm just proud to complete this virtuous cycle, cycle now and be a benefactor, not just a recipient of it. That's fantastic. Let's stay on the DEI theme for, for just a little bit, because I know it's an important part of your mission. And I know you've, you've done a great job of executing on that at the Everlaw Legal Department, as well as your, your suppliers. Talk to us a little bit about the importance of, of DEI and how you've been successful in executing on it. 
Yeah. And so I, I guess I'll, I'll say this. I'm a black woman, right? So let's just put that out there. So I think I've been a recipient of, of folks who value diversity um, and equity and inclusion. However, what I realized, I guess, going back to being a teacher is that everyone has a different perspective and there's so many different strengths that come to the table. And the more diverse my team is, is the better I am as a leader because I am seeing it more. If you think about it, when Google Pixel or any product is launching something, someone's got to tell them, hey, look, you've got to be able to capture darker skin or hey, how about this language? There's a there's a value. And I, I see the value on a daily basis to have a diverse perspective. But also there's a certain element of other competencies that I look for when I lead a team. When you're in-house, I think being a really good lawyer is helpful, right? Like I can tell you, Stephen, I'm actually really proud to say I can negotiate a really good deal for you. If you ever need some help, I can do it. I'm a really good commercial lawyer. I'm a really good negotiator. Um, and I can understand the boundaries of employment law enough. Like right now, I'm like good enough at these things, but I have grit and I'm nimble, right? I'm pretty athletic right. when it comes to law. And so I look for that with people and I value that. And I realize that people talk a lot about wanting a diverse team. But at Everlaw, for example, I have built a team that's 100% underrepresented groups. That's and it's awesome. not that I'm not looking to hire one or I'm specifically looking to hire one. I think folks kind of align with my leadership and how I see things. Like I, I see strengths very differently. I think that there are many things you can teach someone who has the right attitude and the right intellectual curiosity. And I would say the team is thriving. At Google, it wasn't, it actually, my last team, <laughs> my last team was probably actually 100% URG too as well now that I look back at it because they'd make fun of me when, or 90%, but they would make fun of me and said, did you do this on purpose? I go, no, it just happened. Like I'm just waiting for the right thing. Like I'm never rushed into hire. And with my outside counsel spend, it is intentional. It is very intentional. I spend 78% of my outside counsel spend with URGs. It is because I hear the conversation that, well, this person doesn't have a book of business. That's why they can't, he or she, or they cannot make partner. And I want to make sure that we do our part to spend our money to support someone who can make partner at a bigger firm or who is just hanging up their own shingles and wanted to go and do their own thing because the big firm has not worked out for them. And we've gotten great support um, as a result. So it's never, I have this, I, I, Stephen, I hear people say it's a, and, or there is, you can have a hundred percent URG folks on your team. You can spend a lot of money on URGs and your service will be excellent. There is no settling for one or the other. No, that's, that's absolutely right. In fact, I, I would argue that you can get better service levels by having a diverse team. Yes. Oh, I agree. So let's talk about the URG folks you have in big law firms. And one of the reasons you hire them, obviously, they're skilled, they fit your mission, they can deliver service levels. But also one of the objectives you have, as you said, is to help them have a book of business and help them succeed within the law firm. How do you validate that the firm sees it the same way? That's a great question. So I started this when I was at Google. I saw a really good friend of mine, well-respected. He's one of the people I respect the most in my life. He's a VP of policy now, Wilson White. And I saw how intentional he was at spending money and ensuring that the folks where he spent money made partner. And again, it's not because you're diverse. It doesn't mean you're excellent, right? These people were really good at their jobs and it was incredible. And I just followed almost his 
blue books. I wish I would come up with them my own. And at Google, when I did have the power to hire folks, I remember using my LCLD network or my personal network of friends. And I needed a financial uh, attorney for the first time. Google was doing business with the banks. And I didn't feel good, Stephen, that the bank and lawyers understood their regulations better than me. Like I, if I'm negotiating, I like to like come out, like not be so ignorant. And I, and I called this friend who was an associate at the time at a big firm. And I said, look, I need to understand these regulations and I need you all to help us really service the banks. We need to build what the banks need and we need to give the banks what they need in terms of audit rights, et cetera. And she said, sure. I said, but I want to hire you. And she was going to go to partner. I said, I, I will talk to the partner, but I will let them know that you are, you, there's some way you need to get credit for this. And that's what we did. We did that. And I, I did that and I saw that it worked and she got promoted out of council. So I saw that I, I tried it with this pilot and I continue to do that. So if I find that I have the opportunities, I will meet with this. And there are very junior people who are going to grow up to be partners one day and managing partners or even cheer emeritus like yourself. But I make sure to communicate that to the managing partner or to the partners at the firm that matter. Good. That's wonderful. We've got a few minutes left. Talk to us about Everlaw. What's its mission? What's its product? And where do you see the company going in the marketplace? Oh my gosh, I'm so excited because let's go back. Everything is a story, right? I Legal ops, as I told you before I came to Everlaw was really important to me. I think that as legal professionals, there is so much value we have to give, whether it is the perspective of the regulators, the law, or just business, et cetera. And I think it is better that we're not just tired and inefficient and upset at our jobs every day. So to come to a company like Everlaw, and its mission is to promote justice by illuminating the truth, which if I could pick a mission in my life, it would be, is incredible. It's a cloud-based e-discovery software system. And it's just like any other e-discovery. Well, I wouldn't say I think it is better, but it is. it has got the platform, a powerful platform to allow legal professionals, e-discovery professionals to find the bits of truth in the information that they need by sifting through the documents and finding the information. And it's almost full circle because what's not on my resume, what I never speak about is the, or my LinkedIn is the three months between my undergrad career at Wesleyan and me going to be a teacher when I was a litigation assistant. And what I did as a litigation assistant, Stephen, is I printed a lot of documents I created a lot of binders. I built a lot of boxes and I dropped it off in warehouses with no windows. And people had to sit there and review documents. I don't know if you've ever had to do that. Oh, yes. You're you're sitting chills down my spine, sending me back to those days. Yeah. And I was really, I got a lot of paper cuts. So to be able to change the lifestyle of people where they don't have to, and those boxes were always dusty. They don't have to, I think I heard you say, they don't have to do that. And they can work from the comforts of their home or the office or anywhere and work on the computer and figure out how to collaborate together on our platform is incredible. I'm really excited about our story builder tool as well, which allows folks to get that information and start to tell the story in story builder. I'm excited we have some, you know, some we're thinking about what we're going to do with generative AI. We are being intentional about it. We are not the first to announce anything because I don't think we'll be the first to just white label something. And so I'm really excited about how we're just going to superpower just the experience of the e-discovery professionals who deserve so much more than than we have done for them today. The e-discovery arc 
is so interesting to me as you compare it to the current arc we're in with generative AI, because I remember the dusty warehouses I've sat mm-hmm. and then technology began to come in and people were skeptical of it or it's not perfect or it's going to put us all out of work. And now you know, it's, it's malpractice to use it. And it becomes, frankly, if you're not using Everlaw or a technology supported project for review, you're frankly committing malpractice. I agree. I agree. And I mean, we should be using the technology to better assist our clients and our clients, in-house people like me, we should be pushing folks to use it, right? We should be pushing our outside counsel use it through, or using it ourselves. I'll tell you, actually, it's interesting because we're now getting into the generative AI piece. And I was in a conversation where people are still uncomfortable with TAR and having that conversation. Oh, my. Yes. And so. It, oh, my. Yeah. And so I just wonder, like, who's going to be left behind in this? What are the firms? Who are the outside counsel firms that are going to know what technologies to pick up, how to put them together? Are they going to real? There Are they going to rely on the MSPs to figure it out for them? Are they going to work directly? I'm just trying to figure out how the ecosystem is going to improve overall for all of our experiences. It's going to be fascinating to watch. And I think there are going to be clear winners and losers yeah. with this technology. And, and those firms or service providers that figure out how to use this technology in combination with highly skilled people are going to have advantages over. And Stephen, that's the thing that I want to say. This is why I like being at Legal Tech at the forefront of this. I love being at Everlaw where we're thinking about this every day for our customers. Like, how do we please our customers? But I had another conversation. I was at a lunch and I won't name the law firm, but I was at a lunch where, well, a lunch and two weeks before that at a dinner where one had banned all use of generative AI and any product of generative AI. And I think that there's a responsible way to use generative AI, right? And then it's just, it's just as you would use any first year lawyer. And this other person said to me, and it's a lawyer, well-respected, said to me, you know, I'm scared they're going to take our jobs. No, not at all. I think Everlodge is going to make... Everlaw and other companies like us are just going to make our jobs better. And I actually think people are going to see more value for what we bring to the table because we're going to be at the table with a clearer sense, thinking about nuanced issues and thinking about new things. And with this technology, what people forget, I don't know, Stephen, but I, when you started practicing, they're probably at dinner parties, GDPR or privacy never came up. Right. Like this concept of a privacy lawyer wasn't a cool thing. Then all of a sudden, like at Google, like the privacy lawyers, like they had on the leather jackets, like they looked really cool. They were like the cool kids in town. And I think it's going to be just an evolution of the kind of law that we're going to practice and how we practice. I think that's right. One last question, if you can indulge me for just, I know we've run over our time and I, I want to be mindful of the imposition on your time. No, I love talking to you, Stephen. But Everlaw has been incredibly successful. It's grown. It's It's got a huge percentage of the market. It's not the only provider out there for technology-assisted review. What is it about the company that has led to that success and attracted you to it? I mean, you talked a little bit about the mission. Is it because it's so mission-oriented, it's attracted really incredible people like yourself? Is it something about the technology? What's that secret sauce that has made the company so successful? Wow, I wish I can boil it. Thank you. I think there's a lot more incredible people at Everlaw than me, but I think it is a few things. So I was thinking about our values the other day and our values, I'm actually like, I don't know if they're values or it's how we do things. I'm not sure, right? And there's one being process-driven growth attention to detail, setting our own bar and respect for users. 
And I want to say that it's our respect for our users. It is the respect that we have for everyone to be on. AJ, our CEO, is this incredibly brilliant PhD from Berkeley, right? And I've worked with a lot of engineers before. I've, I mean, I was at Google and I did product counseling. But he's not, he doesn't have this arrogant view of just because I can build this and solve this from a PhD perspective that I'm not thinking about my customers and the users, right? So I think we're building something for our users, but we're attracting the talent who has that respect for the users who are interested in setting our own bar and who's attracted to this mission of promoting justice by illuminating the truth. The other thing is we're really intentional, Stephen. And coming from Google, I have to tell you, you didn't ask me this question. It was the biggest adjustment I had to make. At Google, we launch and we iterate. At Everlaw, I myself had to learn how to slow down. It was because there's so many people, the, the market is saturated, right? With any of these e-discovery provider or any MSP. It's how do we go to market? We're slow about that. We think about that. We have plenty of conversations. We go deep. And I think it because the founder is an engineer, so he wants to think deeply. And it is even our approach to generative AI. It's like, what's going to be the best value for our customers? And I think that's it. But I personally, you didn't ask me about this, but I think our... Our company loves our Everlaw for Good program, where we give, we leverage our platform and give our platform to journalists, nonprofits, and firms who are doing pro bono work at a heavily discounted price or at, or at no cost at some times. And to hear the stories coming out of the ACLU of Louisiana or UCSF and the archives and the work that they've done to help unlock for us as consumers, like the real, real problem with the opioid crisis. I don't know. I, I know this was the opioid crisis, for example, Stephen, is something that I think impacted a lot of demographics. So like we can all come together as Americans to figure out that it was an epidemic for us. And being able to help them tell the story that is not about the user, but it is about what the pharmaceutical companies did and how they went about it. it was completely healing for a nation and for people that were interested in Evola as part of that story. And so I think it's all, we're all proud to be here. That's wonderful. Wonderful. Well, Shana, thank you so much for the time, for the fabulous conversation. You're an inspiration to all of us. And uh, it's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you very much. It's great talking to you too, Stephen. And I hope it's not the last time that we talk. I hope it is not. I'll make sure of it. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.